Hey everyone, welcome to today's show. Today we have Lane from Simple Passive Cashflow. Lane, how are you doing today? Hey, thanks for having me, Jackson. Aloha, everybody. Well, Lane, uh, tell me, you're based in Hawaii, aren't you? That's correct. You know, a lot of what we do is invest remotely, you know, put good management teams in place, and uh, go after more scalable commercial assets. Okay, and Lane, your background's in engineering, if I recall. So. I have to ask, how did you go from being an engineer to a large real estate investor? Yeah, I mean, there was a, a probably a dozen years of overlap, but, you know, kind of my story, I started off like anybody else who was told to go to school, study hard, became an engineer, and just started working for the man, you know, made close to six figures starting out, saved my money, was really frugal with my money, and just piled it all into rental properties, um, started, bought the first one in 2009. And then in 2015, I had 11 of those little rental properties. And then I realized that, you know, accredited investors just don't invest in little rental properties because of the liability and the headache. They go into private placements or syndications or private equity deals. And that was where I started to transition into these larger types of commercial assets myself. Yeah, no, most uh, credit investors, in my experience, prefer something that is larger scale, has more room for re higher returns. And single families are great, but they just don't offer great returns like multifamily would. That That's correct. I mean, I think the thing with single family is like, unless you're doing value add, like rehabbing, adding value, you know, you're not going to be getting that. Sure, you're getting marketed appreciation, which is, I think of it as luck and gambling, but that value add force appreciation is taking fate in your own hands. And increasing the value of the asset and you can't just you can't do it on the small scale i mean if you have a lot of time on your hands and you can do this buy rent rehab refinance strategy but let's face it for accredited investors who have a you know a successful business or busy with that or making you know, multiple six figures at their day job it's just not practical for them to spend their time and life energy doing that stuff it's better to just put your money in the hands of professionals who will manage the asset and value add these assets for you exactly and it sounds like you are one of those professionals investors can really trust how did you I think a lot of people in the real estate world think you have to start out in single family homes, then transition to multifamily. Kind of what helped you transition over and help you kind of get your start into the uh, multifamily world? Yeah, I mean, I think a part of it is like your network is your net worth. When I was like, you know, you go to all the local real estate clubs and all the free stuff on the internet, it's all filled with non accredited investors, aka the broke guys. It wasn't until I started to pay to play to get into different groups and higher level masterminds, you know, $25,000 a year groups, that I didn't really find my tribe of other credit investors and really found this other type of stuff and other tax techniques, infinite banking strategies, and different the things that the wealthy do, right? That not the people under a million or $2 million net worth are typically employing. And, and that was kind of my big aha moment. I wouldn't have done that unless I would have kind of gotten out of my shell and met other people, you know, on my level. And now it's interesting. I've been to my fair share of those uh, networking events and half the time it's a guy trying to give a sales pitch on why you should buy his uh, product. He's a 
He's one of those real estate gurus. Yeah, and, and that's, you know, like, I think those meet, those types of meetings or organizations are dying with, like, the free meetup, which are kind of just as bad. They're kind of more loose networking groups of, like, people who hear real estate's a great way to ri- get rich because they're broke. And they hear that's a great way to increase their net worth. But for people who have a net worth of a million dollars or greater or certainly making, you know, a professional salary of 100K or more, it's just not the place to go to meet your tribe. But the hard thing is like, and, and on my podcast, I talk a lot about this a lot, right? Like you and I will agree that single families are not the place to start for our credit investors. But there's a lot of people that listen to podcasts too. And I always have to be very explicit because there could be a broke guy listening, you know, or some guy, you know, like when I started, I didn't have too much net worth. I made, you know, a little less than 100K. I saved 40, 50, 60 grand a year for my day job. Although, but I, you know, where, where, I, where I was at in my early 20s, you know, buying little rental properties was the thing to do. And it was a great place to learn. But as we're, you know, some people are listening here are credit investors. And it is possible to skip over that stuff. Kind of like basketball players skipping college and going straight to the NBA. And what would you kind of tell those trying to skip over, I guess? What advice would you kind of tell them? Yeah, I mean, you know, your, your goal is to go and find... Um, reputable people to work with and go in as a passive investor into their deals. Unfortunately, and you know this all too too much, Jackson, like this is a marketing game for the most part. Real estate is marketing. You know, like look at local real estate agents. It's all a marketing game. Who has the nicest brown shoes and blue pants and nicest headshot where they often look 20 years younger than they really are. But, you know, like that's what's hard. Like everybody has a podcast, everybody has a book, everybody seems to own millions and millions of dollars of real estate, which isn't much. I mean, we, we control over $1.1, $1.2 billion in assets. And I feel like we really didn't start to get our you know traction until we went over half a billion dollars in assets um, maybe a couple of years ago. But you know, that's that's where it's like, well, how do you verify all this stuff? You think these are just vanity metrics that are put out there. Well, you got to find other pure passive accredited investors, colleagues that invest with people and can vouch for people. And you're not going to be able to get that unless you get out there and build real organic relationships. No, and really in the investing world, networking and organic relationships is the number one way to get into any room or into the fields you really want to, especially when it comes to investing. Just recently, I was able to network because I had some friends and I got one friend who got me into a high real estate meet room, basically, an event they host every year that I would never have been able to get into if I did not network and meet people and get out there. So I agree with you in that it's just important to get out there and meet those people. It, and it's also amazing things happen when people start to charge more than $10 to get into a room, at least, right? I mean, you got to stay away from the cheap, easy, free crowd that, you know, balk at, you know, paying 10 or 20 bucks to get into a meeting. <laughs> you really do, but I feel like at times you still got to be careful of those who charge you those $25,000 a year. Some of those events are absolutely worth it. Um, a friend of mine, he went to a, it was a black card event with an investment fund group, and he may have paid twenty dollars or $30,000 to go to it. However, he had to say it was worth every dollar he spent. But some another event he went to that was $30,000, he said it was not even worth ten. So you kind of always have to be careful that making sure you're going to those right events. 
Right, right. And it's also what you make of it too, right? Like if you're somebody who kind of sticks in their shell, doesn't talk to anybody. And on the contrary too, if you're somebody who goes around the room and is kind of a mile wide, inch deep kind of a person, shallow relationships, it isn't going to do you any good either. No, I had to learn that. Really, you just, it's not about how many people you talk to. It's about how deep you really talk to them, how well you get to know them. It sounds like kind of how you got your start is just by really investing in the single family homes and really networking with those who were making more and higher level that helped you kind of get into the multifamily world. That's correct. I mean, everybody has their different investment philosophy. You know, like, I mean, I, I respect and I like venture capital and, you know, other types of non-real estate investments. But I think for me personally, like my bread and butter, what I feel like the best risk-adjusted return out there is, you know, value-add, multifamily class B and C housing. Um, you know, something that was built in the 1960s and 1990s where, you know, it's not pretty, um, but it's a commodity that, you know, caters towards the lower middle class. I think a forgotten demographic, a, a huge demographic, you know, that in a recession performs pretty well because where else are you going to put the glut of the American population, you know, in rents that are anywhere between $700 a month to $1,200 a month, right? That's most of the people in America. And to have a value-add strategy where you're, you know, just doing light upgrades, changing out the flooring, new appliances, new paint jobs and playground equipment, you know, and bumping those rents up $100, $200. I mean, very modest uh, business plan, all while, you know, you're cash flowing on the stabilized asset from the get-go. And I think that that last part you said, the cash flow, I think that's one of the best parts about real estate is that in the moment you're buying it, you're making money from day one. Well, usually you're supposed to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, you know, you, you know, distributions is another thing, right? I mean, to establish a good cash reserves. But, you know, like, I think that's where to differentiate, you know, people think of real estate as flipping houses, right? And which is totally the opposite of what I'm talking about here. The people who got hurt during the last recession, 2008, were these boneheads that gambling on the appreciation going up. Now, when you have cash flow, when the market takes a little hiccup or even a tumble, you should be okay if you're catering towards a demographic that will still need your housing. And that's the kind of the theory, right? Like that's why we stay in this B and C class housing because in a recession, the people who are in those luxury apartments, the class A people, will roll down to the Bs, the Bs will roll down to the Cs, and we're here to catch them as they fall, as, you know, these dem will actually get better tenants in a way. But that's that's the kind of the idea is like, you know, in tough times, be able to cash flow and hold on to the asset. But in good times, you know, you're able to value add and force appreciate the asset. No, and I never actually thought of it like that. I liked how you kind of your thought process on like those in the luxury apartments are going to move down to the B, then those in the B type apartments are going to move to C's. I think we're really about to see that, especially with so many people, so many apartments are just raising their rent. I have friends from college whose rent has been raised maybe two to $400 in just one year. And they're starting to transition from away from those luxury apartments. Do you think you're in your world, you'll kind of see more of a sale off, uh, more luxury apartments going for sale in the next year or so? I don't know. I mean, I just don't really play in the luxury apartment space. I, I just don't. I think of it as more discretionary than anything. You know, I, and I think during the last this last pandemic, was it was a recession technically, 
right? Two quarters of negative GDP growth. It, it, was, it was strange how the high-end people, people typically renting A-class housing, they were peachy. They just worked from home and ordered Uber Eats, where the people who struggled were the lower end, right? The B and C, really our clientele, actually. But, you know, still able to come out of it. I mean, in the beginning, we had, you know, normally we collect maybe 95% of the rents in terms of collections. Maybe in the worst of the pandemic, March and April of 2020, it dropped down to maybe 5-10%, barely anything. Um, typically, like if we can, you know, if we're running at like 50-60% occupancy, we're still making money. That's how robust these assets are. You know, you never know what's going to happen in a recession, right? Like the A's moving to B's, B's moving to C's. That's what happens in a typical recession. Obviously, that was not what happened during the regular pandemic. Um, I do have maybe a, a few higher end, maybe B plus, A minus, A type of apartments. And the, like I said, those tenants were really unscathed. They actually improved their financial situation. And some of them actually let typical buy houses in the early pandemic where the interest rates were still pretty low before the the rents the the housing prices started to really you know creep up but you know somebody's these guys have to live somewhere and you know we're becoming more and more of a renter nation it, it, it's a definitely a bifurcation of the haves and the have-nots either you're going to buy a nice million dollar two million dollar house or you're going to rent our apartment bro you know <laughs> For those listening, could you kind of explain to them kind of the difference between an A property, an A minus, a B, and a C property, real quick? Yeah, I mean, well, for the for the most part, you can you can rank this in terms of like neighborhood class and then asset class. So I'll go through the asset class because it is a little bit more easier to quantify than the neighborhood. But you know, there's different grades: A, B, C, D. There's no really true like, hey, here's a rubric or anything like that, but. For the most part, your A-class assets, these are like your luxury, yuppie type of apartments, right? They maybe range from $1,200 a month all the way up to three, dollars $4,000 a month, right? These things aren't going to cash flow. They don't have good rent-to-value ratios, which we look for something 1% or higher, right? So you take the monthly rent divided by the purchase price. You know, for, so for example, like a lot of these B-class apartments these days in a place like Houston, Maybe they're selling for about eighty thousand dollars a unit. So we need the the rents and other income to be greater than like nine hundred dollars. But you know, like the B class apartments, you know, they usually like maybe nineteen eighties to nineteen seventies type of vintage. Your class C's are going to get into your nineteen fifties, nineteen sixties. So it kind of describes the the decay of these type of assets. But what I feel like is more important is. You know, the building, you can kind of improve the buildings and you can probably turn like a B minus into a B by doing, you know, $5,000 of upgrades per unit, which doesn't seem like a lot. But when you work with apartments, you just rip and roll and it's, it's a major facelift, just $5,000. But like with neighborhoods, you know, A-class, you know, these are like the super safe areas where you kind of take a date out to, right? Class B... You know, you maybe don't want to be there during the nighttime, but it's totally safe during the day. Class C, you don't really want to be there in the day or night. You know, that's kind of the loose, loose formula that I'll use. You know, ideally you want to be in a better, you know, kind of the perfect scenario is you have kind of like a B, C class asset in a B, A type of area, right? Because you can't do any, really anything about the area. You have no control over that, right? Yeah, you can, you can, 
obviously you're trying to pick in gentrifying areas that are improving. You invest on that line of you know, gentrification so you can kind of reap the rewards of improving locations and neighborhoods. But you have more control over the asset, right? So buying a lower class asset in a better area is the typical strategy. Right. No, and I think that really does help people wrap their mind around just understanding that when looking at an apartment, there's more than just saying, oh, it's a multifamily. You have to decide what class it is, how it's a neighborhood house, what year was it. You really have to understand where it ranks in terms of it as an investment. But for, you know, for most of our investors, especially like the business owners, you know, their businesses are so much more complicated than what we're talking about here. This this real estate is pretty easy, right? And I think that's why, you know, you, you hear a lot of sage advice saying, well, you, you grow your money somewhere else, but you you preserve it in real estate because it is kind of dummy proof. The hard thing is like, you know, brokers control deals and brokers are only going to take the good deals to their proven operators that can close. If you're just some Joe off the street, 99% of people out there, you're just going to be thrown the junk, you know, deals that are lukewarm and not really good deals at all. And, you know, so we go through like thousands of deals just to kind of pick one of them. And quite frankly, right now, the, you know, we've gained the reputation that brokers just don't even waste our time. They lose our, their reputation with us if they chose this garbage that they, you know, they give to the, you know, the, the you know, two to $5 million guy who wants to buy an apartment, you know, all of a sudden. Actually, I'm curious, what would you tell someone who wants to get into multifamily? They're, they're still newer. And like brokers are going to look at him as like, this guy has no track record. How do we know he's actually going to close on it? How can a new investor kind of get through that and just show them that, hey, I can do this and I'm going to raise the money for this deal? I'm going to tell you don't do it because like, I mean, you can go spend like $50,000. There's a gazillion gurus out there who love to teach you how to underwrite deals and talk to brokers. It, it doesn't work. Only like 3% of the time, it freaking works, right? Just go invest with the pros who already have that pre-existing relationships and, and going to operate the damn thing for you too, right? You're an amateur. And why would you want to put all your net worth into one deal where you're an amateur doing this? But if you, if you don't take it, my advice, you don't want to pay somebody to kind of teach you the ropes. I don't teach people. I think it's, I think it's unethical. It's just not not going to happen. Even if I teach you all the right stuff, it's not going to happen. But even if you really want to do everything because your ego is like, I want to own the whole real estate building by myself, the old school way, then you have to learn how to underwrite the deals because these guys are just going to send you all the garbage that everybody else passed on, right? Like, you know, all the other like net, which is like a graveyard for deals where only suckers buy those things. No, you're not wrong. And plus, there's honestly added benefit to investing into professionals like yourself, especially if you want to do it yourself someday. By investing with people like you, Lane, uh, they can really learn the watch the process and see how you kind of conduct yourself, how you conduct the business, and seeing firsthand how a real professional does it. Would you kind of agree with that? Uh, yes and no. I mean, you're going to get some insights as a passive investor, but you're not going to see where the rubber meets the road, right? The weekly conference calls with the property manager and the asset management team. It really is, quite frankly, kind of boring and like very tedious, right? And this is where we've kind of employed, you know, professionals who used to be, you know, the, 
the person at the leasing office getting paid 50 grand, but times 10, 15 years of work experience doing that and climbing the rungs as a property management company. And this is, this is where, like, I think we're all professionals here, right? I think we would all laugh if somebody just said, hey, I'm going to be a computer programmer. I'm going to be a doctor tomorrow, right? But I always ask, like, well, how is being a project man or property manager, asset manager, any different? The reasons why these large institutional companies run these properties so well is because they hire hardened professionals, not random entrepreneurs who did something else and maybe has some accounting background and now wants to operate a 300 unit apartment. That, like, that's just, that, you know, like real estate is easy. I give, I give people that, but, you know, that, I guess that's your own portfolio, right? And I think that some people, this is a hard thing for people to wrap their head around. Would I rather be in control of this one building where I have all my pretty much a huge chunk of my net worth? Or one of my kind of general rule of thumb is I don't want to have more than 5% of my net worth into any one deal or project. Right? It, it would be stupid to do this for venture capital, right? To go. And I also apply the same rule to real estate. I like the idea of, you know, being in like, I mean, I think I'm in person like 70 or 100 deals or something like that. Right? I'm diversified, different asset classes, different buildings, different geographic locations. You know, I think that's the way of running a sustainable portfolio where you can be passive to at the same time. But where do you go for, to find these reputable people, right? It's the net, your network. Your network is the key to all of this. Network really is the answer to a lot of things in the investing world and to find good people to invest in. People can advertise so much and say, hey, invest with us or invest with these people over here, but really it comes down, do I trust you? Is there a relationship here? Do people I know refer you? It's things like that that really just helps. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, we, we kind of do, we definitely do discriminate to certain uh, clientele base, right? We want semi-sophisticated people investing and understand the risks of real estate, right? In any investment, there is risk, but I think the sophisticated ones know that the reason why they're investing in real estate is well first they they vetted the people right they're working with honest people i think it's really hard to invest in stabilized assets and lose your money unless you're working with dishonest people that are going to steal your money and i've done that personally right before i have a bigger network we all have to kiss kiss some frogs right hopefully the person listening will go arm themselves with a network first before they go charging out into the landmine field but you know if you can mitigate the counterparty risks Right. And what I mean, counterparty risk is like putting your money in like a, what's the what's the um, Celsius. Right. I think that thing is going under. Right. Celsius going under. Right. There's counterparty risk. But the whole damn thing is going to go down and all your money's gone. Forget about what happens in the crypto market. That's counterparty risk. If you can mitigate that for happening, you're going to do pretty dang good. No, which kind of leads me. It's like you're talking about diversifying and something I really you now correct me if I'm wrong. You specialize in mainly multifamily properties right b and c yeah yeah i mean we've kind of gone off into some developments because of you know that whole this whole idea of going into stabilized assets that have cash flow day one and just a little bit of value add it's a good idea problem is it's hard to find these damn things you know like it's kind of semi low-hanging fruit in a way so you know we've also kind of developed a, a wing of development you know building from the ground up you know, I think our competitive advantage is we can operate it at the end. Should there be any kind of change in the uh, the world, 
right? And I think that's, you know, there are a lot of developers that just specialize in just building an asset, but they have no ability to control an asset. No different than like a private money lender lending money to a house flipper, but that private money lender has no ability to take over the asset, if, even if they could, right? So it's kind of like an empty threat. Well, we're totally capable of managing this asset should there be any recession in the middle of a, the construction or during the lease up phase. But, you know, it's just, I think the big thing is like, there's so little deals out there. We want to have more lobster traps out there to be able to capitalize on the small, less deals out there. Yeah, no, and it sounds like you really are trying to find only the best deals. And I do have to ask, you talk about finding and getting the best deals for your company and for your investors. Has it become more challenging in recent years as we've seen the cost of real estate really shoot up? I mean, it's always going to be harder, right? Real estate always goes up. <laughs> you know, like, that's, that's how it works, right? Sure. But I mean, for us, I think it's, you know, the biggest thing is like being in like the personal Rolodex, you know, not higher, it's unofficial list in that broker's head of who he wants to nourish that relationship. And, you know, with, you know, well over a billion dollars of assets, brokers like us because they want us to sell. So that's kind of added to, you know, we get a little bit more whipped cream on our, our Sundays, you know, when we interact with these guys where in the beginning it was kind of us buying lunch and drinks, if you think about it like that. But, you know, I mean, it, it, I think once you took, it took us a while. Like, I mean, I think the big thing for us was like in 2020 when the pandemic happened, all these smaller operators, they all went by the wayside because they couldn't do anything because their investment groups were small. They could barely raise, you know, five million dollars, and you know, myself included, right? Like, when the when the pandemic came, a lot of investors were just scared, right? I mean, we've never been through a pandemic. Investors typically are more timid, and they just don't want to invest. But we were still able to get. I think in twenty twenty, we still did maybe like should we close at least six or nine deals in that time. So it kept us active, where everybody else fell by the wayside, and it established us big in the broker community to, you know, hey, these are proven guys. And we continued that into an aggressive 2021 because we knew, we knew what was happening. We got through that initial bum rush and, you know, where there was uncertainty in 2020 and we knew what was happening. I mean, look at all the fake money rushing into the system in 2020, 2021. Um, and then it was all just academic at that point for inflation. And we were kind of positioned at the right place at the right time to catch all this deal flow when brokers just all brokers care about is not really how much what's the best price they're getting they could care less they just want to close the damn deal so they can get their commission check that's all they care about they want to just sell it to the people who are proven i mean we've been we've been in the seller seat too we've sold some assets too and that's all we care about too we don't care if somebody really pays $31 million for a deal if they don't really have the money and they're a bunch of newbies and they don't have their capital lined up. I'd rather take a guy at 29, more of a proven seller, than to go dick around through a lengthy due diligence process and work with an amateur. So as a seller too, like, I mean, it's the people who are proven that get these deals. Sometimes there's even interviews, you know, where the buyers line themselves up and present themselves as professional organizations and, you know, and the question is, can these suckers close or are they just a fake it to your make it group? Never even thought about that. I never even thought about a seller really interviewing the buyers to make sure of that, that they can, that they can close. It, it's very different than residential real estate, right? Yeah. I'm kind of, I'm 
this kind of leads me, I'm curious. So it sounds like there's a lengthy process just for selling the property. Like it sounds like you really make sure that when you're about to sell property, you make sure the people you're selling it to can afford it, that they're not going to dig around. They're not going to waste your time. What is the process for you on your side when you're going to buy a co- apartment complex? You know, we, we, we see deals all the time. A lot of times they're kind of like off market or, you know, it's just a, a connection between the broker and, and the seller. Sometimes these sellers, they don't want the deal to go public. They don't want to tip off their asset management team. They don't want to tip off maybe their distress amongst their peers. So a lot of deals are kind of, you know, pushed you know, without doing the full-blown marketing package. And that's when we typically like to get involved in those types of deals. Because once it does go out fully, you know, they're going to get the best price for it. But that's, you know, pretty much the way it works is, you know, we put in a bid, there's kind of a whisper price, and we sit back and we typically don't win it because we don't (laughs) bid high enough. I don't know what the exact numbers are because there are a lot of, you know, there are a lot of unofficial whisper pricing and whisper offers. But... You know, maybe, maybe like one, uh, you win one out of every five, one every 10 or something like that. And then sometimes there's a best and final round, which is fine, right? Because we're always putting in offers, you know, kind of, I mean, it's not as like silly as like the residential world where these, these amateurs are putting in low ball offers. You don't do that in commercial real estate. You can, you can develop a bad name. It's just stupid. You know, nobody wants, we're all professionals here. We're all trading 10, 20, $30 million assets. Time is more important, so we don't really dick around and do that type of stuff in the residential world. The commercial world, like it's more professional. It's not as like all over the place than the residential. And it, you know, in the in the commercial world, real estate brokers' job is actually kind of hard. They actually have to do some work. Whereas in the residential world, all they all they do is they just market for buyers and sellers, or you know, people to hey, you got need an agent. I'm an agent. In the commercial world, they don't do that type of nonsense. They all work for the like the handful of major brokerages who have a brand name. And these guys are actually working their ass off, calling sellers, taking flowers to like the grandma that owns the property, that the widow, like building relationships with all these sellers, you know, kind of us included, right? And like, oh, when do you guys you want to do a, you know, when do you want to sell? When do you want to sell, right? They're hunting for these deals. See, these guys do a they they earn their commissions. Whereas in the residential world, it's more who's the best market and who's the prettiest face. Not saying that the commercial broker guys are ugly or anything like that, but it, it it doesn't matter. That stuff doesn't matter, right? It's more business. And can you find a distressed seller or distressed deal out there? Like we don't buy distressed assets. Like you know, we don't we don't really like these under 80% occupied properties. Cause I'm, I'm sure if that's your business plan, you know, you can make a killing doing that, but that's just not, you know, our, our cup of tea these days. But like to find, we want to find a owner that is somewhat in the distress situation where the asset is fine. It's just a distressed owner, you know, like somebody died or, you know, like there's a partnership and they're in quarrel and they just want out, you know, like some, something like that. And, and, and that's why I say like, don't be the guy who buys the 20 unit, 40 unit, 100 unit all by yourself, because typically those are the amateurs we buy the properties from because they just don't know what they're doing. And then 20 years later, they're just in a mess. That's actually interesting that you're buying from really distressed owners instead of just a distressed apartment itself. I've never heard that one. I've mainly just heard it from distressed people just trying to buy distressed apartments that are failing, but never from distressed owners. So I really like it. Yeah, I would, 
I wouldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole. I mean, in commercial real estate, if that's happening, there is some serious problems going on. You have to uncover what the heck that is. And that's just, I just don't want to get involved in that type of stuff. I mean, like I said, you can make a heck of a lot of money doing that. But that doesn't fall on your, that doesn't fall on your investment thesis, your investment beliefs. Yeah, that's not the strike zone that I swing at. And that's the important thing is that the best investors I have so far met in my life have an, an investment thesis they stick with and they don't really divert from it. That, that's right. I mean, they use the analogy like your buy box, right? Like I was not a very good baseball player and I, I think I played too much golf, but like I like the one where it's outside corner. I like to hit that so I could extend my arms. Like I didn't really like the inside pitch. I didn't like the high stuff. Um, I like that low and outside so I can use my golf swing to hit that out of the park. But, you know, like as an investor, like, look, if, whatever pitch you like, right? Like just know when to swing and just don't touch the ones you don't like. Yeah, and that makes sense. And I think a lot of investors will appreciate that, knowing that they can trust you to stay where your specialty is and knowing that you know what you're doing. You're not just a generalist jumping from place to place. You've got a single mind meaning their investment is a lot safer in your hands than it would be with someone else. And and that's where, like, for the amateur investor out there, your average passive investor, right, like, give the bat to somebody who can possibly hit a home run or, you know, get it out of the infield. Now, I think the mistake that typically these folks make is they don't do anything. They always read the news. The news is just there to set headlines and doom and gloom, or they watch a lot of YouTube videos, and they're frozen. Just like how a lot of people were in the beginning of the pandemic, and they don't do jack. You're gonna get struck out. You know, you're not gonna get bailed out by a walk here if you don't just take all these pitches and just. Most people like they're like, oh, this is gonna happen. This is gonna. And my my next question to them is always like, well, what do you own? What's your net worth? Oh, that's what I thought. That's why you haven't done anything yet, right? That's why you haven't gone off the ground, right? You have to take swings at this, it, you know, especially in the beginning, right? Like you know handful of deals wait you know don't play more than like a quarter of your your net worth i mean most people's got their money in like the stocks and, and traditional assets which i don't have any of that garbage right that's all for like the birds that's it's all this whole system is engineered for everybody to put their money into that stuff and they extract all the hidden gains and the hidden fees and that's why people have to work so long right but I mean, you're, you know, you and I are kind of in the space of alternative investments off the beaten path. We are in a whole different ballgame. And most people don't even, besides real estate, most people don't realize there are so many better and alternative investments out there. And while some of them may not be a lot riskier, they can be a lot more worth it. Um, on our very first episode, we talked to a Broadway producer who helps get investors to invest in these sh Broadway shows. And those can give you such high returns that, they can beat the market for like several years in a row and you get to keep that ownership. Um, I think he told us like the people who originally invested in Wicked are still making money off that investment today and they're making, and that's why I started my thing, uh, a beta capital where placement agency to kind of show investors and introduce them to these alternative investments so that their money's being better utilized instead of just, being in the stock market making maybe 8 to 10% returns every year, if that, really. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the option, right, for investors. I'm going to go and work my ass off, get into all these, like, groups and 
kiss a few frogs of my own or find an investment group and just test them out and you know invest through a guide right like i don't know we're all in we all born in the 70s and 80s here i think we all paid oregon trail when i went across the river i you know got the ferry and i didn't screw around so that four people would drown in the video game right some people are like hell no i'm not gonna pay 35 dollars for that ferry or pretty much guarantee passage to the water I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to cock my own boat, whatever the heck that means. And what happens, right? You mess up. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I'm talking to the right demographic here. I, I love that analogy, though. It's, it's the perfect analogy for this. But that's, you know, again, I think that's very common of the amateur investor. They're cheap, easy, free. They don't want to pay a dollar to get into a freaking, like, better group. And they don't want to they don't want to go through somebody else who will allow them a little bit better passage. No, and you're exactly right. I'm going to assume you kind of know who Grant Cardone is. Yeah, yeah, he's a great marketer. I see him all over the place. Yes, like, I love reading about marketing, and he's one of my favorite marketing people. And I remember one book or a story he shared that's like, he usually charged a lot of money for, he charged a lot of money for his conference when he first came started off. And he decided to host one free marketing thing and ended up no one showed up because people realized that if it's free, that means they're not going to really get that best thing. But when he charged maybe a hundred or so more dollars, he got a better turnout and much better leads from that uh, event he hosted. You got to kind of set the bar, you know, it can't be too expensive, but amazing things happen when you five when you charge $5 or $10 at the door. Lane, we don't got too much more time today, but how can investors, if they want to, people listening to this want to invest into your your real estate fund or your companies, how can they kind of go about that? Yeah, um, so if they're a podcast listener, they can check out my podcast. It kind of follows my journey from buying rental properties to accredited investor status with all this deals and taxes and infinite banking they can check it out at simple passive cash flow passive real estate investing on itunes and google play the website simple passive cash um, i think might be useful for a lot of these folks is like we have like a checklist on like you know something i made where like i balanced out all these like certain things like you know track record on these people you know they celebrity status you know i've kind of we're like, and I'm more real estate deal focused. Like, what is the reversion crap rate that was used? Assume what is the rent increases per year? Assume, you know, just to check assumptions. You know, it, in a way, it kind of teaches people how to evaluate deals. It's a starting point. Um, so, we've got that checklist on the website. Um, but yeah, if people are interested in getting connected, they can shoot an uh, email at lane at simplepassingcashflow.com. Lane, thank you so much for coming on the show. And thank you for just sharing your wealth of knowledge and your years of experience in this field.